16A0063, Damian Simpkins versus the state, Andrew Fleischman for appellant, Amy Sobani for appellee. And we've had you two days in a row, and nice to see you again. Good to see you as well, Your Honor. And when you're ready, you may proceed. Thank you. Um, my name is Andrew Fleischman. I'm here on behalf of Damien Simpkins, and this is a really straightforward issue. The defendant was convicted on the basis of evidence in violation of the Confrontation Clause, and his lawyer didn't do anything to stop it. His lawyer was ineffective. So this is a drive-by shooting case, and a few weeks or months before trial, it's not clear the prosecutor and the defense attorney got together. The prosecutor said, well, I have the confession of the co-defendant in this case. In that confession, he says that the defendant was the shooter, that he was in part of this meeting to talk about the shooting, and that afterwards, uh, your client forced him to drive him around. So we're going to submit that at trial, but we're going to redact it by replacing the defendant's name with a pronoun. And trial counsel says, great. He does not file any motion on Bruton. In fact, as far as I can tell from the record, I'm not sure he filed any motions at all. So the reason he gives is that this is such an important case that he is confident the state will do the right thing. So then opening statements come in this case, and the prosecutor tells the jury, all about what Defendant Magruder told Sarah Lou, including uh, defendant McRuder says he does not know this guy who comes and picks up Defendant McRuder and Defendant Simpkins. There's no objection to that. But obviously from the statement, the jury knows now that we know these details because Defendant McRuder, he tells GBA agent Sarah Liu what he'd done. So at that point, if there was any ambiguity before, the jury can be pretty confident that we know these details because that's what McRuder said. Then agent Sarah Liu testifies. She starts off by establishing a rule that a perceptive juror would likely pick up on, which is that there's 12 co-defendants in this case, and that people who are not being tried get named. People who are on trial don't. So she gives this, uh, he was with other individuals, one of those being Delante Tarver, one of those being Octavia Sixon, and two other individuals he mentioned at that time. That's pretty clearly referring to Mr. Williams, who pleads out before the end of the case, and Mr. Simpkins, and then once again goes through what Mr. McRuder says Simpkins does. He, he's given instructions. He's told to, sh to shoot the person. He gets in the back of the car with a gun. He hears a gunshot from behind him. And then the defendant pressures him into driving him around. And he has to sort of beg to be let out of the vehicle. So even if we had nothing else in this case, this is Defendant Simpkins' murder trial. The jury knows that the state's theory is that the defendant is in the back of the car shooting the victim. And any reasonably perceptive jury is going to pick up on this blank. Because it wasn't followed by defense counsel, for instance, cross-examining the, the agent and saying, aha, but the person he named was not the defendant, was it? Any reasonable juror is going to pick up from this blank that he's talking about either Simpkins or Jason Williams, and that Williams, by the end of the case, is, is out of it. Um, there's no objection at this point. And the reason trial counsel gave, he said, well, I was very aggressive throughout the trial. It was my job to be the aggressive lawyer. But I didn't object because there were no Bruton issues. There were no righteous Bruton issues in this case. So his basis is that under his understanding of the law, there's no problem with these statements. Then in closing, uh, 
the prosecutor tells the jury, he said others were in that car. We don't know the other. That's referring to the person that they don't know who gets called. We know these two, presumably gesturing to the two people in the room who are still on the case. So at this point. Presumably gesturing? Well, sorry, we know these two. I think at this point, any reasonable jury is going to interpret we know these two as we know these two defendants, not we know these two great songs or we know these two great. He's talking about the other people in the car. We don't know the other one. We know these two. Um, so at this point, the jury really kind of knows what this blank is about. It's about defendant Simpkins. And trial counsel said he doesn't object in closing because he was not going to object to anything at closing. He had decided he had been really aggressive at the rest of the trial, so he was going to lay back and not be aggressive. But at this point, the horse is out of the barn. There's really no way, no reasonable way the jury could not have known that Magruder identified Simpkins as the shooter. And because, as I'll go into in a moment, the other evidence against Mr. Mr. Simpkins was not strong, it was prejudicial. So, absent, absent these statements by counsel, do you think that the substitution of the pronoun would have been a sufficient way to deal with the Bruton issue? Absolutely not. Even had counsel not specifically told the jury about these statements, any reasonable juror would have figured out from the blank that they were talking about Mr. Simpkins. The state's theory was that he was the shooter. This person identifies an individual as the shooter, and there's no cross-examination or suggestion otherwise that someone else has been identified. Is there any way to have that statement in at all? Yes, there absolutely is. You can, so Bruton is all about giving the state the benefit of a confession against a co-defendant, but not hampering them. So you could have here, for instance, Mr. McRuder told me he was driving the car, and he told me he had been instructed to participate in a shooting, without the suggestion that he had named somebody else as the individual. At that point, you would probably get rid of the bad effect. Though, of course, after this opening statement, you really couldn't have done that anymore. At this point, you probably need to cut the whole statement out and instruct the jury to disregard it. Um, so yeah, there was a potential way to fix this, but counsel didn't do anything. And this, the judge suggests maybe he didn't want to call attention to it. Maybe that was a strategy. And that might explain one or two lapses. But to not do anything before trial, at the opening, during trial, at closing, and then not to request a Bruton instruction that this evidence cannot be held against the defendant. And the only reason he gave for that is that other instructions were more important to him, and he thought there were no Bruton issues at trial. But I assume you wouldn't think that a Bruton instruction would solve the issue anyway with all of these no. issues that you cite. Even with a Bruton instruction, this wouldn't be solved. Without it, though, any reasonably smart juror who figures this out has no reason not to use it against the defendant. The reasonably smart stuff, I mean, my understanding of Bruton, putting aside what counsel yeah. argued, is you have to be able to look at the statement and it has to directly <coughs> implicate the defendant, it, not through other information. So just the testimony says another individual, and as trial court pointed out in the new trial order, it's in the context of all kinds of other individuals bouncing around the scene at that point. How, without referring to other information, how does the jury identify Mr. Simpkins? Well, the rule about referring to other information exists in the context where a jury is properly instructed. So if you read Richardson and Marilyn v. Gray, what the court says is, well, if a jury is properly instructed, they won't hold something against the defendant unless it's really obvious and thus prejudicial. Without that instruction, I don't think we need to engage in that presumption at all. The jury's got no motivation not to guess. But even moving past that, in Gravy, Maryland, deleted and deleted participated in a beating, right? 
Um, and the courts, the Scalia and the minority say, oh, but you need more information than that. And what the court says is, a reasonably smart juror would figure out that deleted refers to people who are on trial in this case. And in fact, that redaction, rather than helping the defendant, calls attention to it. And in fact, in Davis v. State, which this court decided in 2000, uh, the court considered the fact that another co-defendant, uh, another witness had named the defendant as a shooter in considering the harmful impact of the Bruton evidence. So really, first off, that requires the Bruton instruction to kick in, and second, here, you don't even need to look at other evidence. Opening and closing argument isn't evidence. So that would <clears throat> rebut that anyway. Um, in Gravy, Maryland, immediately after the statement came out about deleted, the witnesses asked, and afterwards, you've got an arrest warrant for this defendant. And that's how the jury figures out pretty easily it's the defendant. Here, you have an opening statement that does the same thing, and a closing statement that does the same thing. Um, and there's a reasonable probability of a different result here because the only other evidence, as the AG concedes, that the defendant was in the car with a gun is a co-defendant or an accomplice, Ivy Elam. Now, Ivy Elam is not only an accomplice, which means that his testimony alone can't convict the defendant, but he was heavily impeached. What trial counsel got out was that it was only days after he was arrested that he named the defendant, only after police told him that they should name Simpkins as a defendant, and only after they brought in his father, who had previously testified against defendants in a trial, to talk about how it had benefited his life. So a juror might have seen that and said, I'm not sure this accomplice is particularly trustworthy. But assuming they find the accomplice trustworthy, the other evidence might or might not meet the accomplice corroboration standard. Um, it's on the weaker side. So the other evidence against the defendant, apart from Ivy Elam, is two men who see the defendant at the scene, and the fact that the defendant has been hanging out with this group all night, and the fact that the defendant says that he raps with MF MFG, which is the name of this group that's alleged to be a gang. But there's actually evidence in the record that MFG is a legitimate rap label, including the state presented rap videos to the jury to watch and listen to. And several witnesses said it was a rap label. So while there is evidence of presence that is corroborated, you would have to say that his rapping with MFG and being with the group alone was enough for participation under the corroboration standard. Yeah. I'm not really sure how that shakes out. There's not a lot of case law where it's that close. But it's close enough that there's a reasonable probability of a different result. I mean, if it's arguable that the evidence would be insufficient absent this evidence, then it's probably a reasonable probability of a different result. In short, defense counsel really did nothing to protect the defendant against this evidence. And the reasons he gave don't make sense and don't hold up. Because the defendant was convicted in violation of his confrontation clause rights and without the benefit of effective counsel, a new trial is required. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Fleischman. Ms. Sapani, for the appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Amy Sabani, and I'm here on behalf of the appellee, the state of Georgia. We would request that this court affirm appellant's convictions and sentences. The sole issue in this case is whether appellant received ineffective assistance of trial counsel based on, as appellant characterizes it as, trial counsel allowing the state to convict appellant using his co-defendant's unconfronted statements in violation of Bruton versus the United States. 
we would contend that appellant has failed to meet his burden under Strickland versus Washington to show that one, trial counsel performed efficiently in this regard, and two, that but for trial counsel's alleged errors, there is a reasonable probability that the result of the proceeding would have been different. Was trial counsel correct that there was not a righteous Bruton objection available to him? Your Honor, I believe that de depending, I'd like to look at this in three different sections, the opening, then the actual statement, and then the <coughs> closing. I think with respect to the opening, Um, as you see here, there's, there's a few ellipses right there. There are three sentences in between that um, are not on this version, but right there, if you read it, Defendant Magruder says he does not know, comes and picks up Defendant Magruder and Defendant Simpkins. This section, nor does the rest of the opening argument, nowhere does the prosecutor say, Defendant Magruder said, defendant that he and defend appellant were in the car together and that appellant shot him. In fact, if you look prior to prior on the prior page, I believe it refers to a gunman in the back. So his name is not used. I, and I would argue that with respect to the opening argument, there is no righteous Bruton objection because there's these sentences that are in between. And also it's a little bit vague. We know these details because defendant Magruder, he tells GBI agent Sarah Lou what he'd done. So what, what details are you saying this, this particular sentence refers to? The details is there's again, there's three sentences and it talks about how they left the guns in the car and things like that. And again, this statement, as it says, talks about Magruder and appellant being picked up after the shooting. It doesn't say appellant was the shooter and then they came, they came and got picked up. That's not what this says and. Isn't the prosecutor describing here what defendant <coughs> Magruder, uh, what information defendant Magruder provided? The whole body of it and some of that information is that the defendant said that he and Simpkins got in the car. Isn't that the context of it? Your Honor, I believe that the fact that it says these details and with the, um, the other sentences in between, I don't think it's immediately clear that he is in fact talking about appellant. And again, when you look to the previous parts of this opening argument, there's no, it's not, it's not entirely clear that he is the one who's being referred to. And he does say what he'd done, i.e. what Magruder had done. Um, with regards to whether there was a Bruton violation in the actual statement, we would argue that there is not. What Agent Lou did when she testified in this case was she, she used the term another individual. Within her testimony, which um, specifically on the statement, it goes through approximately pages 83 through 102. There's no reference, there's no obvious reference that another individual is appellant. And in fact, it's important to note that that Agent Lou was the second witness who testified in this case. And at that time, the third co-defendant, Jason Williams, had not pled out. So at the time, there were in fact three people sitting at the, at the table, meaning it wouldn't be entirely obvious that it was appellant or his, or it could have been his co-defendant. Is and it always enough to substitute a pronoun? Your Honor, I believe it depends on the context in which it comes through. For example, the Davis case in which the, um, which appellant cites, 
In that case, they replace it with a pronoun, and then immediately after, after they go through that testimony, they say, and you arrested him after, after that, didn't you? They put in the person's name. So I think a lot of it depends on the order of the way the evidence comes in. So for example, in this case, I believe that it was um, sufficient to have a pronoun in this case because there's no testimony that obviously indicates that it was appellant. There's, they don't use a nickname. They don't use some kind of identifying feature that would be immediately obvious to the jury that they were talking about appellant in this case. And then with respect to the closing, again, in context, it does. Can I just ask, what's, what's your best case for the idea that you don't have to eliminate the reference to the defendant in, entirely? I mean, that you can, you can replace <laughs> the defendant's name with a pronoun or I would cite I would cite this court's decision in Butler. It's the 1999 case that I cited in my brief. I believe in that case they actually replaced it with they did A B C D in that case. In addition, I'd point out that in Gray versus Maryland, there's actually a specific example where the court says me deleted deleted and a few other guys is not sufficient. Why couldn't they just say me and a few other guys? And so I believe that that case does leave open the door for substituting just another, just any kind of pronoun or someone, another individual, something of that nature, that that leaves that option open. And again, I believe this court, um, looking at the court's decisions in Hanifa and Davis, it really appears that the context that surrounds that statement becomes determines whether or not the substituting with a pronoun is sufficient. Uh, with respect to the, um, the closing argument, again, looking at the statement in context, says he said others were in the car. We don't know the other. We know these two. It's not, a, it's not clear from context that he's saying we know these two because Magruder told us it was these two. I believe it's just a general summation of the evidence. We know these two from the rest of the evidence that was presented at trial. If, for example, there was the, as um, appellant referenced, there was the testimony of Ivy Elam, who was the co-defendant in this case, who was um, cross-examined very thoroughly by um, appellant's trial counsel. And he was the one, he's the other person that sees appellant and Magruder get in the car. And actually he sees appellant get on the specific, the left side of the car, later sees the shots fired, coming out of the left side of the car, and there were other witnesses who also testified as to seeing shots being fired out of that specific side of the car, in addition to other witnesses claiming that there were um, shots being fired out of both sides of the car. So that statement, again, um, in trial counsel's um, explanation for his failure to object to this, again, he discusses how he felt that he'd been very aggressive in the trial, and he actually goes in great length and talks about especially compared to the co-defendant. In fact, I believe this court reads through the transcript, it does become very apparent that this, um, that appellant's trial counsel was kind of like the, the go-to one, the very aggressive one. And I think he, he had um, his concerns about being too aggressive for objecting in this portion of closing <coughs> argument. And again, making the jury dislike him any more than they perhaps already did. I think that was a valid concern. I don't think there was something that he was just saying. Again, it's somewhat apparent from the record. Why not ask for a Bruton instruction? Uh, Your Honor, he testified that he had other instructions that he was more concerned about. It doesn't, um, 
That's a pretty stupid thing. I mean, what's the harm of getting a Bruton instruction? There's great benefit to it because it tells the jury not to consider anything Magruder said to the police against Simpkins, right? Yes, Your Honor. And I would argue that in this case, because the redaction we're contending, especially with respect to how Agent Liu testified, because that redaction was so well done and because of the order of the evidence, again, we have Agent Liu who's testifying second. The jury at this point, they've had the opening argument, but they don't really know, they don't really know what's going on in this case. They are made aware, however, in opening argument that there are 12 defendants in this case. They see three defendants sitting at the table. Were there still three defendants at the time of closing argument? No, there were not. He, um, I believe he pled out right before the testimony of Ivy Elam. So that was like the third, um, Agent Liu's statement would have been on the first substantive day of trial. The third day, right before the co-defendant testified, that was when um, there were only two. And in fact, um, just to add in addition, in between Agent Liu and Ivy Ellum, who Ivy Ellum is, let's say, the star witness in this case, and then after that, they have other witnesses that are going to be corroborating parts of what Ivy Ellum testifies to. There's two full days of trial where there's very voluminous witnesses, medical expert, forensics expert, the people that um, the crime scene technicians, things of that nature. So. The fact that Agent Liu's statement was so early in the trial before there had been any real evidence about appellant being in the car, it would have been more difficult for the jury to make that connection. And again, um, pointing to this, case, this court's decisions in Hanifa and Gray, believe that or the ordering, again, of the evidence in this case made, made that... Um, made it harder for the jury to kind of make the connection that the... Um, the Bruton or that the limiting instruction would have remedied. If you're right about that, asking for a Bruton instruction directs the jury not to try to figure out any of those connections, but not asking for a Bruton instruction leaves the jury completely free to try to sort out all of those connections and, and whether or not the opening statement and the closing argument and all the evidence means that the redacted name was Simpkins. Well, Your Honor, this court has held that the, that the jury is allowed to consider the other evidence if the statement standing alone does not inculpate right. the defendant. So you have this statement, which I believe standing alone, talking about another individual sitting in the back of the car, does not inculpate the defendant. It's only when you have the additional admissible testimony of Ivy <coughs> Ellum that that statement is, becomes admissible. So under the linkage, under the, the, the cases that discuss the linkage, that um i guess my question is it as to the bruton instruction was trial counsel not deficient or are you arguing that that just wasn't prejudicial but are you, are you saying that it's not deficient to ask for a bruton instruction in a situation like this believe in this situation it would not be deficient just again because of the strength of the redaction in this case again looking at especially um the davis case in that case again the, the redaction was not done well at all especially because after you have the redacted statement you have the prosecutor asking and didn't you enter didn't you enter um arrest that the name of the person whose name had been reacted right after that. There was no instruction in that case. This case, I believe the redaction was was done well enough that it wouldn't be per se deficient to fail to um, request that instruction. However, wouldn't a better wouldn't a better redaction have not mentioned the other person in the car at all since that was problematic? 
Your Honor, I think the problem with that is without mentioning that other person in the car, how does the jury know that what Magruder did was <clears throat> problematic? Otherwise, they just get a statement about someone who's driving in a car. If he says something, he puts it in passive. He says shots were fired or something. The jury, the jury is going to figure out that there's someone else in the car. But if you take out any of those details, as far as the jury knows, Magruder is just driving around in the car and something happens. He doesn't know what. But the jury, I think, can put that connection together because you, you can't, ex in this particular case, given the status of Magruder as being the drive-by shoot, being the driver of the car, his conduct isn't necessarily um, on its own. If you don't know anything else, you wouldn't understand why he would be charged with a crime. Mr. Bonney, I believe one of the parts of the order of the trial court was that even if there was a brutal violation, it was harmless. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yes, Your Honor. We would contend that the trial court was correct in that determination. Again, point to the testimony of Ivy Ellum, who is the non-test or who is the co-defendant that was te who testified and was subject to cross-examination. He was at this. There was a meeting beforehand. He was at the meeting where the um, the gang leader, I guess for the lack of a better term, Delonte Tarver. He was there when Tarver orders Magruder to drive and then appellant to quote unquote do it. After that, Ellum sees them walking over to the, um, the Dodge Charger, which was, there was testimony that that Charger was owned by another gang member, or another co-defendant in this case. And he sees them, he sees the, he sees the appellant get into the left side, and then he sees the, he sees Magruder get in the driver's seat. A few minutes later, he sees the same car drive by where the shooting occurred, and he sees the shots being fired out of that left window. There was other testimony in this case. Again, um, Lester Pitts, I believe, who was a, another one of the um, eyewitnesses, he actually sees Simpkins walking towards in the direction of where the car is. In addition, there was another witness, Terry Lynch, who is there present at the time of this meeting. He didn't, I don't believe there was testimony that he heard these instructions from the gang leader, but he was, he was there and he was aware of Simpkins' involvement. Following that, you, you have Sim all these- Simpkins' involvement, as to that witness, I mean, a lot of these people just saw Simpkins at the scene with lots of other people, right? Other than the co-defendant who would be an accomplice you would need to corroborate. Yes, Robert, I believe that the corroboration here actually comes a lot from the when you talk about Ivy Ellum's testimony and how he talks about the appellant getting into that left back seat, there are at least two other witnesses that discuss seeing fire coming out of that left back seat. Yeah, that wouldn't be corroboration of the identity of the person in the left back seat. Corroboration of the details of the crime isn't corroboration. You'd have to have corroboration that Simpkins was that person. Yes, and I believe the testimony of Lester Pitts talking about them walking towards the car, would that would be enough, again, circumstantially, given that the corroboration standard can be slight, circumstantial, does not have to be sufficient to warrant the conviction. I believe putting all those together, when you talk about all these witnesses who see the gunfire either shooting out of this particular side where the appellant was, or both the sides, and then you put that together with him being at the meeting beforehand, somebody walking in the, someone seeing walking him in the direction of that car, then putting all that together, it's um, even not considering Magruder's statement, it's a very strong circumstantial case. What's your view of um, opposing counsel's statement that the 
the standard of not of the the statement not being incriminating on its face against the defendant only applies in the face of a properly instructed jury your honor there's I think there's a little bit of a tension between some of the cases. Some of this court's cases talks about redacting the co-defendant's name and then the instruction. Then there's the other lines of, tar of cases that talk about the, the statement not being incriminating on its face. And in those cases, sometimes there's not, there's not a lot of discussion as to limiting instructions. So I think there's a, there's a little bit of tension there as to whether, um, as to the need for the limiting instruction, it's maybe not entirely clear. Again, um, Looking about it being not incriminating on its face, obviously a statement that has been redacted such as this with the term another individual is, is not incriminating on its face. The, the protection, though, of not incriminating on its face is when you then tell the jury you can't, you are not allowed to try to link up what this co-defendant said with any of evidence against the defendant. I'm sorry, you're not allowed to use this evidence directly against the defendant. Without that, the jury is is essentially told you are supposed to connect up all the evidence and figure out who this missing or redacted person is. However, again, if the, since the standard is the statement when linked with other evidence, the the jury can be instructed on this. But I just it it seems to be one of those situations where, again, even without the testimony of Magruder, then they they might make that linkage themselves, anyways. If the court has no further questions, I would again ask that this court affirm the convictions and sentences. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Bonney. Uh, Mr. Fleischman, any uh, response? Uh, yes. Um, first off, I want to talk about the defense, defense counsel's argument that he was aggressive during the rest of the trial. I think that really hurts the AG's argument more than it helps it. <coughs> it, could, it removes the possibility that he was holding back on objections so as not to make the jury angry, right? That's probably the only potential strategic reason I could think not to object at any point to Bruton, and he sort of throws it out. Talking about this inference stuff, you know, just a little bit about the history. Back in 1968, when Bruton was decided, there had been this long history of, as long as you give the instruction, we're going to assume the jury followed it, and that it's safe, and it's good. And at a certain point, the court was like, you know, maybe this instruction isn't enough. Maybe we need additional protection on top of it. So Bruton says, really, take the name out to the extent that you can. And then Richardson v. Marsh, they say, well, this statement only incriminates inferentially. Hmm. The jury would have to take an extra leap to think what this co-defendant said was even a crime. So we're going to say that with the proper instruction is not enough. And then in Gravy, Maryland, saying that a person, whatever that pronoun is, committed a crime is basically identical in the Supreme Court's view to saying the person's name, where the jury can figure it out because of the context of the trial, even with no other information. Because that redaction, if anything, draws the jury's attention to it. They think, gosh, why are they holding back on this? It must be really good evidence. Um, that opinion, Gravy Maryland, gets into a lot of jury psychology and what the jurors likely think. And that's basically the law of the case as far as, as this goes. Mr. Blackwell, let me ask you this on the uh, harmlessness here. Do you, do you believe if, if there was a Bruton violation, he didn't get a fair trial as a result? I agree with that, Your Honor. I mean, I mean do, you, do you say that? I'm, I absolutely do say that, Your Honor. I, tell me why. Well, for one thing, the AG was just arguing about how it met the corroboration standard for accomplice corroboration. And she did a, you know, the best job you possibly can making that argument, but it was still a little difficult. It's not clear without this statement that this evidence is sufficient. Therefore, there's a reasonable probability of a different result. There is a reasonable probability that a jury confronted with a statement of one guy who says the defendant gets in the car 
And nobody else who makes that statement might say, this just isn't enough, especially given that that person was pressured and heavily impeached. Um, he didn't get a fair trial, essentially, because of this statement. What do you make of counsel's suggestion that a statement that Magruder got into a car without any mention of anyone who's possibly the shooter would simply be an indication that he was driving around the city rather than that he was part of a crime? Well, you could put the part in where he was talking about what he was going to do, go drive. But also, if the AG is right and there's no way to try these two people together in a way that's fair to both parties, then severance is a perfectly good option the state could have sought out. And in fact, there's 12 co-defendants in this case. They decided they would try them in batches. And this was the first batch in this, uh, in this <coughs> recipe. So I don't see any reason, if it's truly unfair to the state to redact his statement meaningfully, then severance is the only option. Or you give him immunity and you let him testify against the defendant in that case. And that's it. Um, finally, I want to talk about this statement. I don't understand what sort of mental gymnastics the jury would have to go through to hear we know these two and think it wasn't about Magruder's statement. Everything around it is about Magruder's statement. I think he references that statement eight times. What sort of jury would think he can't possibly be talking about Magruder's statement? He must be talking about the evidence of the trial as a whole. That psychological leap is probably a bridge too far. I don't see a reason to think that that's true. So in short, under Gravy, Maryland, under Davis v. State, trial counsel was ineffective for not objecting to this and for not taking any steps to protect the defendant. And in the absence of that protection, this was not a fair trial or a reliable result. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Fleischman, and thank you, Ms. Savani. Um, appreciate the arguments, um, and hope you'll be safe going back. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be.